Hello, and welcome to Green Signals Episode 5. Um, with me, Nigel Harris, here in uh, in lovely Lincolnshire, where the uh, autumn trees are all showing the tints on this cold but very bright day. And... And me, Richard Bowker, in, in actually equally glorious Derbyshire, where it's cold, it's clear, and it's lovely. Indeed, indeed. So... Thanks for so many amazing comments that you've sent us following last week's show, episode four, in which we had the experts expert on fares and ticketing, the man in seat 61, Mark Smith, as our guest. Now, Mark's comments generated a lot of chatter on Twitter. Chatter on Twitter, sounds good, doesn't it? And LinkedIn. And we'll certainly be asking Mark back again at some point. Always a pleasure to hear him talk about fares and ticketing. And what a pity that the government and Treasury don't listen to him as well. Our deep dive into all things fares and ticketing included the decision announced just six hours before on the day we recorded the show, abandoning the government's controversial plans to close up to a thousand ticket officers in England. Now, Richard caused something of a stir by telling, <laughs> telling the... Good, good, good on you, Richard. Keep stirring, mate. Um, caused something of a stir by telling the industry, I paraphrase, to get off its knees, find its collective voice and start pushing vigorously back on Treasury and DFT micromanagement, especially after ministers threw the train operators under the proverbial bus in its U-turn scrapping of the ticket office closures plan. Um, Richard also made a superb point that we shouldn't be talking about privatisation and nationalisation, but what we really need is a return to professional management while we've still got enough seasoned and experienced professional railway managers to get us out of the mess we're in. It all left a really sour taste, and whilst remaining discreet, the tox are known to have been furious at this D DFT betrayal, which is what it was, and rightly so. Clearly, the show struck a ringing and resonant chord with uh, listeners and viewers on YouTube, and there were some terrific responses from Green Signal. Here's just a few. Tony Wilson said, quote, Very enjoyable pod again, fellas. Mark Smith certainly explained the current ticketing process and the best way to improve and simplify the whole thing. Carry on the good work. Thanks, Tony. We will. Malcolm Brooks said, can Mark, <laughs> can Mark Smith be Prime Minister and you two could be Chancellor and Minister for Transport? We'll have to fight over who does what, Richard. You couldn't do a worse job and probably much, much better. And a certain Graham Eccles of this parish, who he, said, again, a good programme. Mark as knowledgeable as ever. Praise indeed from a tough chap to impress. We should have Graham as a guest fairly soon, do you think, Richard? Oh, we, do you know what? We definitely should. I, I've got to say, there's four people who, as operators, I used to kind of pin back my ears and listen when they ever were speaking. You know, uh, Bob Braitwell was one. Uh, yeah. Chris Green. Yeah. Uh, Gordon Pettit. Indeed. And Graham Eccles. So I think he would be, he'd be terrific to have on the show. Um, and of Green Signals overall, my very dear friend, Steam Fireman Extraordinaire Joanne Crompton said, no nonsense, straight to the point discussions about all things rail related from Richard and Nigel, all subjects current and past. Uh, and by the way, before any pearl clutching starts, Fireman is how Joe insists on describing herself. 
Um, so thanks to all. We really do appreciate the feedback. So green signals in Parliament again. Um, we usually record the show at the weekend, although last week was different uh, because we had the transport focus report into ticket offices. But by the time this episode is actually uploaded and available, Richard and I will have been at the Transport Select Committee, to which we've both been invited to give evidence as witnesses. They're looking into HS2 and in particular the recent decision to scrap HS2 North. We'll tell you how that went next week and hopefully... We'll We'll both emerge unscathed. Um, by the way, TSC Chair Ian Stewart MP invited Richard and I to go and give evidence after hearing Green Signals Episode 2, HS2's Top 10 Myths, which, if you missed it, is still available as an audio file on your podcast provider of choice. Or there's a video version on YouTube. Um, the video pod is pr proving... <laughs> to be surprisingly popular considering all you get to look at is Richard and me but hey you know the market's deciding Richard so <laughs> they, they must like us watching us yeah. so they're very welcome to pop along Richard incidentally without blowing too much sunshine his way did a superb interview on the west coast mainline's continuing and increasing unreliability on radio for today on Saturday November the 4th in which he was name-checked in the intro on this agenda-setting programme as a presenter at Green Signals. We are fantastically proud to have achieved such wonderful awareness less than a month after launch. Um, we'll put a link to the programme on BBC Sounds, if it's possible to do that, yep. on, the blog, on the blog page of yeah, resources we, we put up after each issue so you can dig a bit deeper into stuff. Yep. It was, a, it was a, quite a lengthy, chunky interview, and... Um, Richard did a great job of, um, of, of putting the point across. So today we have a quick look at potential judicial review into the Prime Minister's dreadful decision to cancel HS2 north of Birmingham to Crewe and Manchester. Now we hear a lot, we hear a lot about judicial review in news stories um, and Richard explains what the off-discussed JR process actually is and what it might achieve. It isn't actually what many people think it is. So, stay tuned. Our big guest interview is with Mark Hotwood, CBE, Managing Director of Great Western Railway since 2008, so Mark's a real survivor and this'll be good. As well as being a Class 50 and Boeing 747 superfan, um, Mark is one of the most experienced TOC MDs in the country, whose 34-year thus far career goes back to 1989 as a telephone inquiry bureau clerk at Reading. So that's your podcast for today. Um, so let's get into it. Could there be a JR of the HS2 decision? Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, there's been much talk of a possible legal challenge into the Prime Minister's damaging decision to cancel HS2 North. Uh, perhaps triggered by the DFT Permanent Secretary's admission that the Parliamentary Act enabling Phase 2A from Birmingham to Crewe will need to be repealed. And that can be a time-consuming process, I understand. Or maybe it's not. Um, Richard will tell us, there are many misconceptions about JRs. People think that they can change a decision, and I don't, and they can't. Richard? Um, thanks. Uh, it is... Uh Quite a tricky area, this, and I should just say, uh, I'm not a lawyer, um, and I'm certainly not a constitutional law expert by any means, 
but I have actually been through the pre-application phase of judicial review, both as a potential applicant and as a respondent. Um, so um, a little bit of, uh, of knowledge about it. So what is what is judicial review? Judicial review is, is basically where you go to court and ask the court to overturn a decision taken by um, a public body. And in this case, it would be um, the government. Now, what you're not what the court can't do is say, yeah, I agree, I wouldn't have made that decision. I'd think the, the, the outcome was the wrong one, or you didn't like it, so I agree with you. The whole point of judicial review is to, is to test whether the process that had been followed by the government was, or in this case the government was correct. You have to, first of all, you have to get permission to bring a judicial review. It's interesting, I think only about 5% of um, people who try and get a judicial review are given permission to bring one. Um, so it's quite difficult to do. And there's usually, there's, there's basically three um, grounds for judicial re- uh, review. One is that the decision was unlawful. You'll sometimes hear a phrase called ultra-virus. So the, so the government or the public body didn't actually have the legal right to make the decision that it was procedurally, second one is that it was procedurally unfair or defective in some way. And the third one, which I think will probably have people's ears pricking up, is irrationality. Right? So how might somebody bring a judicial review against uh, the decision on HS2? Well, we don't, we don't know or I'm not aware yet. Um, I think the irrationality one is quite difficult. So um, ir- to, to get a judicial review uh, on the grounds of irrationality, the bar is very high because you've got to demonstrate that no reasonable person acting reasonably could ever have come to that decision. That one, So that one's quite hard. But the ultra-virus point is potentially quite interesting. You know, did they have the power to do it? And that kind of brings you on to the point you just made there, Nigel, about the Act and whether or not it needs to be repealed. Now, the Act, now, when we say the Act, we're talking about the Phase 2A Act, so the bit from Birmingham to Crewe. So Phase 1, the bit the building, that's got an Act, and they're doing it, and they've got all the land together, and they're making it happen. The bit from Crewe to Manchester is still going through Parliament. It's only a hybrid bill. So the bit we're talking about is the Birmingham to Crewe bit, um, where there is an Act, uh, and I can't remember the name. It's something like the Birmingham to Crewe High Speed Rail Act or something like that. Um, and the question is, does that have to be repealed? Well, it's an enabling act. So that doesn't... An enabling act usually mean you you can do something, but you don't have to do something. So some people, I guess, believe it won't need to be repealed. <clears throat> However, there is a view, um, I've heard said by a number of people, that Parliament spent such a long time debating, considering uh, the whole of that that bit of railway before they passed the Act, that Parliament expected it to then go and get built. So, you know, you probably might need to think, well, actually, if Parliament has that expectation, we can't just sit in a party conference in Manchester and go, do you know what, we're not going to do it anymore. So that's why it may need to go back to Parliament. And I think Bernadette Kelly, the Permanent Secretary, has said it will need to they'll need to be an act of repeal there's another good reason for doing it of course land has got to be acquired and whilst the act is still on the statute book i suspect there's an argument that some of the land that may is still yet to be 
um, acquired, or even some of the land that's already been acquired, could be blighted, statutorily blighted, because the Act is still on the statute books. So uh, the one thing I think we can be absolutely certain, if the government, if the Prime Minister thought that just standing up and saying, I've cancelled it, was the end of his problems, I think, I think that was a mistake. I think this, this has still got quite a long way to run. So it could get bogged down in the same argument over a long period. It's interesting you said about the uh, Parliament having an expectation, especially when you consider the intensity, depth, length of the debate in advance Quite. of the vote and the very solid vote. Every vote in Parliament has been sort of cross-party yeah. and enthusiastically yeah. in favour of HS2. So there could be a good argument. Well, we'll keep our finger on this pulse, Richard. But um, Certainly will. Thanks for shining a bit of a light in our darkness there. That's always, always appreciated. And now let's move on to our big interview. It's our deep dive time. And welcome to Mark Hopwood, CBE. From an inquiry clerk in 1989... Um, to GWRMD since 2008, Mark's roles have been pretty varied. He's been station manager at Slough. He was a passenger negotiations manager <coughs> excuse me, for Railtrack at Euston. Railtrack, remember them. Um, ops director for First Northwestern at Manchester. Um, it's a three-page CV, and you can find it on our blog page to see what Mark's full range of activities been, and it is a very full range of activity. He even finds time to be president of the Cholsey and Wallingford Railway, a director of the Institution of Railway Operators and deputy chair of the Railway Ball. A family man with two young daughters, he even finds time to be a DJ and presenter as a volunteer for Hospital Radio Basingstoke. I mean, I'm exhausted, Mark, just reading out the list. He was then appointed CBE by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II in 2021, so let's get stuck in. Richard Bowker, also CBE, and I have to say I'm feeling a bit left out here, um, is going to kick things off for us. Absolutely. Well, welcome, Mark, and um, it, it's great to have you on uh, on the show. Um, I, I just want to start with with one thing that we talked about. We've talked about a couple of times now on on this podcast, which is this um, sort of separation between uh, the in the profit and loss account between who's responsible for cost and who's responsible for income. Because obviously, the DFT look after cost, and the Treasury get the income, and that must make being a Talk MD really quite difficult because if you want to come up with a bright idea, it must be really hard to get it done. I mean, is it causing a real issue? And and if it is, what 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 on earth can we do about? It? What do you do to kind of manage around that? Well, first of all, uh, hello and uh, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation and uh, great to see you guys getting your podcast off the ground and it and it doing so well. Hopefully, uh, more and more you. people will will listen. I think it's a really good question. Um, Richard and I mean fundamentally the railway the railway is a business now whether the railways run uh, in the public or the private sector as a business it's still a business where we're providing a service to people who pay their money to us uh, and obviously we have we have costs uh, that we incur in in running that business and I I just struggle to understand why we should be any different to any other business you know whether you know whether someone's running a, 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 a bicycle shop or a Sainsbury's supermarket or uh, an airline or anything else, uh, nobody else separates their costs and their revenue uh, in a way like that. And actually, you know, you you need to take make trade-offs between the two and say, well, you know, if I spend a bit of money, I can drive my income in a certain way. 
and you just corrupt the whole system, I think, by by separating it. And um, it it was something that happened during the COVID period, I think, for perhaps understandable reasons. But we've we've come through COVID now; that's history. And I think um, you know, there's a lot of focus, quite rightly, on the finances of the industry, and people want to see less taxpayers' support. And we can achieve that by some focus on cost reduction. But I think our biggest opportunity to achieve that is actually by driving our revenue. I think particularly in a business like mine, you know, over half my revenue now comes from leisure customers, well, well beyond half, sort of 70 70 percent nearly of our is that, revenue has it always been like that is that a, is that a relatively recent phenomenon then? it's 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 changed slightly richard but um yeah great western in the shape that it's in i mean even before covid about 51 percent of our revenue was leisure leisure travel and of course that balance has has been one of the things that's changed quite considerably since the um, since the pandemic. So um, I think we understand there needed to be some different arrangements in place through through COVID. But now, um, you know, what I want to be doing is making my business as successful as possible, bringing as much revenue as possible in, so that I can actually have as little call on taxpayer support um, as possible. And it would be nice to be able to be uh, left to get on with that with with my management team. So if we go back to, say, the t- time just after privatisation, and, and like you, I'm not... I'm not making a statement saying privatisation is better and, and that's not the point. What happened immediately after that was train companies um, said we, we need to run more frequent uh, and reliable services. So, you know, hourlies became half hourlies and so on and so forth. And if you run a really quite boring but frequent and reliable service, the money comes in. D- do we need to get... Do we need to kind of get back to that? It, it feels as if we're kind of looking at when, when you're constantly sort of chopping out, that's going to have the opposite effect. Yeah. And, you know, and at the moment, there's pretty much a view, um, certainly in the Treasury, that we shouldn't be running any more services at all. Whereas actually, there are actually some, some routes, some commuter operations where that's probably a sensible outcome. Um, but there are, there are some leisure flows. I mean, in my business, you know, we think... Um, the, the, the growth that we've seen now justifies potentially going back to a service, Richard, that you uh, instructed us to strike out of uh, Oxford to Bristol. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, the, the market between sort of Bath and Oxford, Oxford, Bristol, um, very strong. East-West Rail is coming towards us and that will improve the connectivity of Oxford. Um, but at the moment, the structure doesn't really um, support that, that, that type of thing. And I think, you know, I, I absolutely understand that the railway's absorbing in you know, a huge amounts of taxpayers' support and there's a very strong desire in the Treasury uh, to bring that down. And um, I don't uh, think that's unreasonable. I think the question is how we how we get there. And actually, um, you know, even in British Rail days, um, British Rail had control of its um, of its P&L. Mm. It does, and I agree. And it does feel as if um, it, that, that is a big block at the moment. Totally agree. I mean, there's nothing wrong we wanted to control costs and, there's, and that's that's sensible and it's, that's what good businesses do. It's it's how you then generate the uh, the cash to be able to to make it more viable. That kind of leads us, I think, Nigel, nicely on to talking about 
reform. Yeah, it does. Um, your point about the Treasury, Mark, really in, reinforces Richard's point made in the last Green Signals that the entire focus is on cost. There's no interest at all in revenue, um, which is a, a, a ridiculous um, situation. It's been, you and I were both at the Bradshaw lecture back in February when Mark Harper stood there and got the room on his side by saying that managing directors should be able to manage and direct more than they were at the moment. Do you feel since February any more able to both manage and direct? Uh, sadly, I don't. And I um, I foolishly got myself very excited back in February that uh, I thought we were, we were heading towards perhaps... Uh, an opportunity to start changing things, and um, this, you know, one of the things about this is that I've not met anybody who actually thinks this is a good idea. I mean, I have heard a rumour that one of the Treasury officials who's behind this uh, lives uh, on my network. I won't say where, in case anyone uh, goes and gets him. But um, uh, <laughs> I have I have pondered the idea of getting up. Uh, one morning and heading out there to perhaps meet him on the train for a conversation. But yeah, I mean, nobody, even, even I think in fairness, the Secretary of State and the Rail Minister don't think this is a sensible way to structure things. And the Secretary of State clearly wanted to change it. And um, if he wants to change it and he hasn't, you have to ask well, why, why might that be? And I guess the reason is that he's being stopped by people in the Treasury and in Number 10 as we've got the most anti-rail Prime Minister I think we've ever seen. OK, so what do we do about it? Is GBR still the answer, or do we need something different? Um, I mean, you know, a guiding mind is one thing, but given the, the, the depth of the mess we're in, do we need something a bit more, I don't know, deterministic um, to, to shift the needle, break the inertia, and actually get things moving? Well, I, I think, I mean, I've been giving this quite a lot of thought, over recent months and I mean I guess all of us have got our own sort of view of exactly what type of structure we think would work best but I think the thing for me now is that you know things are in such a concerning situation that I think any any structure that actually allowed the industry to uh, get on and um, run the day-to-day -day activity um, and left um, the politicians and DFT to focus on the high-level finance and policy would be a good idea. And of course, GBR um, looked like it was going to move forward and then didn't, and it needs legislation. Um, I know that people in the GBR uh, transition team have done quite a detailed piece of work that says, what could we achieve without legislation? And could we use um, something that's very sort of uh, technical and boring, but what's called a statutory instrument, which is uh, a process that goes through Parliament um, that, that isn't quite as difficult to manage as legislation? Um, and they believe they could make some progress, but again, that's been that's been blocked and, and, and stalled. So I think the, the reality, as far as I can see, sadly, is that we're not going to see any change in structure until we get to the next uh, general election, which is, you know, somewhere between sort of 12 and 15 months away or 12 and 14 months away. I mean, you said in the last, uh, I think the last episode, Richard, when we were doing the West Coast route mod, that Alistair Darling as Secretary of State stood back, trusted you, let you get on with it and just said, just don't leave me with egg on my face. Um, that would be a, a luxurious position to be in now, wouldn't it? 
It would. I mean, he was. I mean, he, he was very careful to make sure that he wasn't going to get um, left with egg on his face. So um, nobody should think he was sort of laissez-faire about it. It was actually quite. He was. He was on it. Um, to, to coin a phrase, um, but but there was there was a structure and there was an element of kind of empowerment, which I think is kind of what Mark's referring yeah. to. There's no, there's no sort of kind of <clears throat> sense of empowerment, and I I do find it, I suppose, slightly depressing actually. That uh, well, encouraging in a way that Department for Transport ministers get it and at least understands that there needs to be some more empowerment. But the you know, we use the phrase that the dead hand of the of, of the um, of the treasury is is preventing that, and that is that's only going to make their problem worse. And number ten, well, look, it's um, it'd be very easy to to depress ourselves, wouldn't it? Um, it? It's not all bad news, of course. Mark is in the luxurious position at Paddington of sitting astride Britain's busiest railway, which now accounts for I think six percent of all national carrying. So, over to you on that one, Richard. It, well, uh, uh, yeah, is that is that. It'd be fascinating to hear Mark's because I thought Il- the Elizabeth line is obviously what we're referring to, which is a, is a triumph in so many ways. Was was a, was accounting for something like one in one in six of, of every um, passenger journey now on the network. I mean, understandably so because it's taken over. You know, Elizabeth line is is a lot of what was sort of suburban services before, so that's sort of slightly. But but if I mean Elizabeth Line, Mark, I mean congratulations. Absolutely. Let's face it, it, it wasn't just a TFL project. It was a massive undertaking to get so much integrated um, together. I mean, just just tell us how that happened. I mean, it was it was a triumph, but I'll bet behind the scenes it was an awful lot of hard work and sleepless nights. Yeah, and I think certainly if you if you look back over that project, there's certainly some things that you'd want to do differently. But I think, um, I mean, it, it it was a good example of people having to come together and and work together. And of course, I mean, people often think Elizabeth Line is a is a new railway, which in central London it is. But of course, yeah. out uh, out on the Great Eastern and on Great Western, it's. Um, Using existing existing infrastructure, and the, I mean the other thing they did very cleverly uh, was they used some bits uh, of uh, the old um, Silverlink network that I managed many years ago to get 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 through the Connaught tunnels and um, and out on the Abbey Wood line, which is a, a fascinating story in itself. But I think on Great Western, um, of course, the work was going on at the same time that we were embarking on electrification of the wider. Great Western Network, um, rebuilding Reading Station. And of course, the Great Western Electrification Project hasn't had the best um, reputation, and probably deservedly so in some respects, but um, Reading Station reconstruction was a great success. Actually, it came in a year early and came in um, under budget, which is not something you hear too often about a major project. And of course, the the reconstruction of Reading um, was what actually allowed us to review the whole proposition for the Elizabeth Line, um, which you know at the time we were talking of as Crossrail, to actually extend it beyond Maidenhead. Because I mean, not not everyone knows, but originally there was a plan that I was going to run a diesel shuttle from Slough to Reading every thirty minutes, and uh, Crossrail would only go to Maidenhead. Um, and it was great actually to work. Um, with everyone in the industry to generate a proposition that went to government and got approved to actually extend those trains uh, through um, through to Ready. And um, it, it's certainly proving to be a great success. I mean, I think uh, obviously uh, 
the reason that those usage figures are so impressive um, is partly because there's some new passengers, partly, as you've yeah. said, Richard, it's existing rail passengers, but also a lot of London underground passengers. I mean, it's not well reported, but actually the Jubilee uh, and Central Lines have actually reduced their service levels slightly since introduction of the Elizabeth Line because so many people um, have moved across and a lot of the Piccadilly Line business from Heathrow has moved across. And I think it does show the power of the TfL brand, actually, that a lot of those services were there before. Um, but the connectivity with Central London and getting them on the tube map and so on, um, tremendously um, powerful. But yeah, there's a lot of working together to get the railway electrified, building things like the, the act and dive under I've mentioned um, Reading Station. Sadly, one or two bits of investment like Slough and Maidenhead stations cut back a bit at the end, so that still needs to be um, to be finished off. But I think the the passenger numbers do uh, speak for themselves, and um, you're seeing huge growth. And you know, a lot of the stations on the line of route now. Um, it's quite interesting looking at the amount of of development that's going on. That those stations are now seen as as really attractive stations. The um, residential and commercial property market around those stations doing uh, well. So yeah, GWR is is obviously not operating the Elizabeth Line, but I think it, it, it's also transformed um, our business at the London end. Our, our customers who get into Paddington now have got a much better option for getting um, through to central and east London. It used to be the worst connected London termini, and, and a higher percentage of our customers actually travel beyond Paddington than any other termini. It's about 81%. Um, but we're also now seeing um, a lot of people in, in North Kent, in Essex, in East London, uh, contemplating train journeys out of Paddington in the way they perhaps would never have done, you know, a day trip, um, perhaps uh, from Abbeywood to Oxford or um, someone who's who's living out, say, near Ilford, who wants to, uh, to go to Bath for the day. Uh, it's just a much easier proposition uh, for them. So we're seeing the, the benefits of that flowing through as well. Look, that's really interesting. Um, one, one issue, though, on the Elizabeth line, and maybe this is a, um, an issue relating to the interaction with TfL services, HS2 is... is um, goes to Old Oak Common and then it goes on to Euston. Uh, hmm. But there is a debate now as to whether or not it really will stop at um, a, uh, Old Oak Common instead. We've got a six train per hour potential platform there because it was never designed to be a terminus. It's all designed to be a through station. Um, I, if, it, if it becomes a terminus, that either the station box has got to be completely redesigned, which I don't think is a feasible thing, or we end up with... Um, a massively restricted service on HS2, but you've got the problem with stacks of people getting out and changing at Old Oak Common. A view on that? I mean, Old Oak Common, it just doesn't work as the terminus of HS2, does it? I think we're very good in the railway at making things work, uh, Richard. So I think we could make it work, whether it's a sensible outcome, um, I guess, is a, is a more interesting question. I mean, you know, Birmingham... Birmingham to London, getting out at Old Oak Common. I suppose it partly will depend on where people are are headed. Um, I mean, there are some places in London where, um, you know, the journey time from Old Oak Common versus the journey time from Euston, bearing in mind the speed of the Elizabeth line, won't be won't be radically 
um, different. I mean, Old Oak Common uh, into Paddington is, um, you know, is is, a, is about a four minute four minute journey. So um, I think um, we'll we'll have to see. But yeah, I mean, I think Euston would clearly be better. And I mean, I was talking earlier about how busy the Elizabeth line is, and um, you know, a lot of those trains that are coming uh, up from the west, whether they're coming from Heathrow or Maidenhead or anywhere else, they're, they're full and standing. So, um, you know, the, the people who want to go in from Old Oak Common to central London are really going to have to get on the trains that start at Old Oak Common. And, and actually TfL need, I think, about another six trains in their fleet to be able to extend the right? Elizabeth okay. Line service yeah. out. And none of that's been been authorised and of course there is the option of going in maybe on the the limited Great Western service but that'll only get you to to Paddington and you know if someone's going from Manchester to London um, you know the cancellation of uh, phase two means their their journey's already going to be about half an hour longer the journey time savings less than half an hour Uh, and if they're going to chew a larger amount of that up getting from Old Oak Common to central London you know I um I almost wonder if uh, when I retire, I'd set up an open access business to run trains on the West Coast into Houston because it might be a better, better option for people, actually. Well, it, I was it, about to ask you that very <laughs> question, Mark, that will people not just stick with a classic route rather than well, faffing yeah. around up and down escalators? Well, they, they won't, unfortunately, on. because if everything, if all the Manchester Londons are going via HS2 at Hansacre Junction, um, there really isn't the capacity to put too much more on the existing line. There will be south of Tamworth and Lichfield, but but not really anything north of it. So yeah. it, the whole thing becomes a bit problematic. Um, you, you mentioned Great Western uh, electrification, which was um, uh, never quite got to where it was originally intended to do. Seemed to take you know forever to do. Cost a load of money. Um, I mean, it's what's what we've got now is. I presume is good, but is it is it a, a sort of an example of how we've, as an industry, we've forgotten how to do major projects? Yeah, and I think you know I'm I'm not an, an engineer, but I think one of the the things that I saw with electrification was it took quite a long time to get the team together to recruit the right people to bring the experience in Uh, and certainly what I saw was as the project progressed things actually got better I mean the last bit of electrification we did on Great Western was Reading to Newbury and they actually uh, flew through that and I had the slightly bizarre uh, thing going on on my mobile phone ringing and people cancelling possessions because they'd done all the work quicker than they than they thought now clearly it wasn't like that at the beginning, um, and it seems to me a very bizarre response to that uh, is then to disband the team, um, and 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 again, we you know when although they're doing some work up north, you know if we want to start putting um, electrification back in on Great Western, we're going to have to to reconstitute that that team and um you know you can you can have a debate for example about bits of railway like Newbury to Bedwin that were never part of the scheme and where the Bedouin should have been done and how important that is. But I think to suggest that Oxford and Bristol uh, were sensible places to delete from the electrification project is really, really difficult. Um, And uh, I uh, took uh, another 
uh, famous railway podcaster who I won't mention out uh, in the cab of one of my trains recently um, and we were going from London to Oxford and we were looking at the fact that actually a large number of the masts for the electrification project to Oxford are in the ground. The foundations are there and people just walked away from that and left it left it half finished uh, because effectively the money uh, run out. And, you know, Bristol is one of the um, fastest growing cities uh, in, in the UK. It's a source of enormous economic growth for us and somewhere that desperately needs a better mm. train service and so not, not to get the electrification in. I mean, with the IETs being bi-mode, um, it gives us that flexibility, but sure. the trains perform so much better on electric. And, of course, if we'd have had electrification into Temple Meads, it would have allowed us to look at running things like Cardiff, Bristol, local services with um, with electric trains. So, um, yeah, I think from my perspective, a missed opportunity. But, I mean, I understand the concerns in the Treasury about cost, and clearly um, it, it would be foolish for anyone to say that that project was well managed, I think, particularly towards um, the start. Um, but also quite a lot of money spent on, um, you know, dealing with the... Uh, robustness. I mean, one of the one of the great things, having been through some nasty weather recently, we have all sorts of things to worry about with weather on Great Western, but we don't have to worry about the OLE uh, falling over. And um, you know, I think if if the world of international politics and international relations was ever to de- deteriorate to a nuclear war, then um, at least the electrification masts on Great Western would still be standing at the end of it. Uh, I mean, it's quite, it's quite a dark thought, isn't it? But, yeah. but you, you make a very, very, very important point, which is our existing network um, was designed and built and upgraded at a time when we didn't have the same issues in terms of um, climate resilience. Um, looking at the CP7 uh, settlement that's just come out, where Network Rail seemed to have got less for CP7 than they had in CP6, which was also... And for those who are listening who have no idea what I'm talking about, a CP is a control period, a period of sort of five years when Network Rail get given a chunk of money by the government for operations, maintenance and renewals of the railway. So we've just had the next um, control period announced and it's less money than the last one, which doesn't sound very sensible in the context of a railway that needs more operational resilience um, than, than, than ever before. I mean, is this we're just storing up a problem, aren't we? Well, I, I think the one thing I would say about the control period settlement is that it is good to have a control period settlement. And certainly, um, you know, uh, in the world of train operators, we would um, give our back teeth to get a five-year financial uh, settlement that we could rely on. And I think Andrew Haynes has has made that point. I think um, the expectation, Richard, I think, on network rail over the next control period is that they will they will find efficiencies and and cost savings and i yeah. think i think there are opportunities i mean one of the the things that's been going on in recent years is that you know there's been a lot more um standards and a lot more insistence on things being done in a certain way and that that is sensible to some extent yeah. but it has i think made things more expensive um than they need to be and i think it 
I know from talking to colleagues in that were well, things like the um, uh, track relaying uh, out outputs vary quite considerably from route to route, um, and it's a lot more expensive on one route than it may be on on another. So I think there is an opportunity for network rail to um, to try and find savings. And I think you know the costs of of possessions, and there's definitely some work for us to do as an industry to deal with this problem that you know network rail take a possession at night to do renewals or maintenance but they're only actually getting about 90 minutes of work done because the rest of it is is wasted in getting the possession set up mm. and handed back and there's a lot of contingency so i think there are opportunities to to have a look at that but um yeah i think you asked that question in the context of of climate resilience and i think you know I've I've been on the railway as Nigel says since 1989. I think this is something that I can clearly see changing. You know, people who tell us there is no climate change, I, I think, are clearly wrong. I mean, we're seeing more and more impact from from weather, more severe storms than the UK has mm. seen, um, and uh, that that's leading to to issues. And of course, you know, things like the Carmont accident have led to a much more cautious approach uh, by network rail in how they um, prepare for weather and when the railway's open and when the railway's not open and things like speed restrictions as well. Okay, well, look, I mean, an extremely um, fair point about um, resilience and preparedness. Mark, which actually sort of takes us on to a bit of good news, which might be an opportunity for, for the future. Indeed, indeed. Just before I get to that, though, just to finish a point on the electrification, I remember the first trip I had on your railway, Mark, when the masts were going up and was horrified at the um, the tons of steel that were involved and the sheer variety of different numbers of masts. And I remember asking, shall we say, a very senior network rail person why they hadn't just bought an off-the-shelf German or Swiss system. Uh, And the reply has stayed with me. The reply was, well, yes, but our engineers wanted to design their own. Um, And and, and you can see we know what we we ended up with. Um, But, yes, there is good news to be had. There's more good news to be had. The Elizabeth line is a brilliant bit of good news. But, of course, at the other end of the passenger experience, there's Oakhampton, Mark, that seems to have gone extremely well. Stuart Calvert and his team seem to do a brilliant job of upgrading, relaying it and reopening it in, in, in record time. I mean, how's it gone? The numbers sound impressive. Just fill us in on the story. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we are really pleased with Oakhampton. And we've, um, we've seen, what, 600,000 passenger journeys since it opened. Uh, wow. 490,000 of those through to Oakhampton and just over 100,000 actually has increased business at Crediton, which was the uh, station that was already served by the um, the Barnstable train. So um, I think that's a great success. And actually, you know, the neighbouring line to Barnstable has grown 20% since uh, COVID as well. Interestingly, the yield is is actually 50% above what we forecast because we're oh, actually right. seeing uh, more long-distance journeys. I think we thought most of the business would be local journeys into Exeter, uh, but actually it's driven quite a lot of traffic to London and uh, and so on. So we are very pleased and, um, you know, yeah, the train service is there, but we've also focused quite heavily on restoring the station at Oakhampton with a visitor centre. We've also done some amazing 
work. Uh, I say amazing. I think it's amazing with the bus links. Uh, so um, Devon Council have worked very closely with us to restructure their supported bus network into Oakhampton. Um, and we've got bus links to some of the places that we don't yet have a, a train service to. And uh, I don't know if we're still allowed to talk about the National Rail Awards, Nigel, but small station of the year uh, there. So um, that's good. And of course, we've now moved on to talk about Oakhampton um, Parkway and um, yeah I mean Stuart Calvert and the team at Network Rail and a number of other people did do um, a great job of course you know it wasn't a, a reopening from scratch um, you know I I guess the open secret is I was running a train to Oakhampton every Sunday in the summer uh, since 2009 um, but we have uh, completely relayed the track and uh, as you're probably aware you know it ended up in this very curious corporate structure where we had a branch line in Devon uh, owned and operated by the Iowa Pacific Railroad in the US um, and that, that went into receivership it was bought out and we, we helped facilitate that deal with Network Rail and then we we made the case we're the first of the beaching reopenings uh, the Restoring Your Railways Fund was used um, and actually there haven't been many others behind us but we've shown that it can be uh, a great success and we're very pleased with that. It was brilliant and I was particularly impressed with the extending the reach of the railway by the mm. work you mentioned with the bus services and uh, yes of course you're, ent you're still allowed to mention the National Rail Awards Mark, I seem to recall handing you an outstanding personal contribution trophy in what was it, 2017? Um, so, yeah, I yes. think it's behind me actually. I yeah. thought it was that, it just well, the 50. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I mentioned in the in the intro that you're a, a Class 50 super fan, and there's one on your shelf behind <laughs> you. Because uh, I grew up with them double headed through Preston um, in advance of electrification. It's, it's why I used to go to Preston. Are there any colour pictures of that, Nigel, or is it all just black and white? <laughs> <laughs> yes, boom tish, as they say. Yeah. Um, but what about extending the reach of Oakhampton even further, Mark? Say across Meldon Viaducton to Tavistock and back to Beer Alston, um, the northern route as a bypass for Dawlish. Well, I have to say, I mean, my views on this are not always the most um, the most popular in the southwest. But I think, you know, if we're going to reopen the railway. Um, from Oakhampton uh, to, to Tavistock. I think the business case for that is really going to have to be driven by the, the business on that route. And the, the case for it being a diversionary route, I think, is relatively weak. And actually, I mean, the, the work that Network Rail have done at Dawlish to improve resilience and the next phase of the work, I think, will, will make that a much more resilient railway. But I... I think, you know, we're, we're here in an environment of, of really constrained finances. And I think we just need to recognise just how expensive some of this stuff is. And, um, you know, the, the railway uh, track bed, for example, uh, from Beer Alston to Tavistock, the, the railway only owns 80% of the land. And getting hold of the other 20%, I think, is going to be quite difficult. Um, and I, I would much rather focus on improving some of the existing services um, in Devon. I mean, if you take the Oakhampton and Barnstable services, you know, they leave the main line at Cowley Bridge Junction. They're on a single track bit of railway um, through to Crediton. We're still using uh, old-fashioned tokens and train staffs to control the service. We're constrained with our speed. I mean, I think there's 10 minutes to be taken off the journey time 
between Exeter and Barnstable by uh, not having to stop for token exchanges and for train crew to operate the level crossing. And I can achieve that with network rail at a fraction of the cost of okay. building a new railway. So if someone's going to come along and build a new railway um, or they want us to try and help them, then we'll certainly have a look at it. But I, I think um, the focus for me is on very much trying to improve what's, um, what's there. But let's see, uh, let's see what happens. I can see Richard nodding away. I think you'll find a sympathetic ear with well, him on it, that one. It, it will because it's such common sense right i mean what mark has just said there is 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 spot on in terms of looking at how you can improve what we've got is is tends to have a much more much more impressive sort of marginal uh, case than than something new it is expensive and it is difficult that doesn't mean and mark's saying the same as i would i think it doesn't mean you should never ever look at it but um i would certainly say let it not distract us from the the task of improving what we've got i just wanted to pick up one quick point if i may you mentioned about dawlish and resilience there um mark which is really good it's been battered in the last uh week or so by um the latest storm um kieran and how did it cope i mean did 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 the work i saw a photograph of the of the footpath that was was damaged but the railway looked okay yeah, I mean, the um, the physical infrastructure held up very well. We're pleased with that. We have had some issues with the with the, the more modern trains with electrical equipment on the roof, so there's some mm. work to do with, um, with Hitachi uh, there. But, yeah, it held up well. And I think, um, I mean, the other thing, uh, Nigel and Richard, I guess, while we're talking about the southwest and talking about building up the current uh, railway, I guess it... I, I would just like to throw into the debate, you know, over the last 15 years up to COVID, um, we've seen uh, 121% uh, growth uh, in our customer numbers on the wow. branch lines in, in Cornwall. Wow. And what we call the Devon Metro, which is the trains that bring people into Exeter. And of course, Exeter has one of the biggest universities in the UK. Um, it has the UK home uh, for the Met Office. Um, but we've seen 120% uh, growth there. Um, and and that hasn't involved building lots of brand new railway lines. Yeah, we've put a passing loop in on the Falmouth line. We've opened some uh, new stations uh, in Devon. But compared to the sums of money that people are looking at uh, around HS2 and some of the money that's proposed for some of the projects in the north of England, these are these are tiny sums of money. And I think... You know, going back to the debate we were having at the beginning of this discussion, I think if we could be released to do more of this type yeah. of stuff, we could actually see some some really impressive uh, improvements in uh, uh, revenue and passenger numbers uh, without having to spend um, huge sums of money by um, by railway investment standards. And that's something I'd very much like to see. Some modest improvements with a biggish. Um, benefit which is has got to be good to see okay mark that's really interesting stuff um we're going to go back to richard now and you might want to get your uh, your wagons in a circle <laughs> because um i know for a fact he's been saddling up a couple of hobby horses so well, I, mr b off you go <laughs> hobby horses i don't know um i mean just one thing on the on the point that Marge just made about the, that 120 percent improvement which is absolutely superb i i had a chance during the summer with a family uh, i mean i conned him a bit really i said we're going to go to loo for the day and they didn't realize that that involved going uh, on a train down from Liscard. i mean 
cracking to see. Lovely little branch line. Good load. Good load on the service that I did. And, um, yeah, it was. It, it's just fantastic to see those assets uh, being used more and more. So, no, listen, congratulations. I, yeah. I and not so much, I don't know if hobby horse is right. I mean, I suppose Here it comes. Well, it's just sort of slightly <laughs> cheeky questions, I think, really. First one is the, the sleeper service. Um, and I, I, did, I did say once to Alistair Darling when uh, back in SRA days, I, I slightly cheekily, uh, certainly tongue-in-cheek, suggested we might want to look at the, uh, the Scottish sleepers as a potential cost-saving. It, it, really, I'd never really understood why taxpayers subsidise people's hotel bills, I suppose, really. Um, and he quite sensibly pointed out that he was also Secretary of State for Scotland, and that probably wouldn't have, have gone down terribly well. But you've still got the sleeper to Penzance. Um, it is, I mean, it's a great thing, but it is, is it in a, in a world where costs are so tight, a justifiable thing? Well, uh, I mean, it, it is a good question, Richard, and I think it's one that should be asked. And, you know, I mean, the sleeper costs us about eight and a half million pounds a year to to run um and i guess yeah honestly i suspect most of those people would still travel with us if we didn't have the the sleeper but the sleeper is really important in cornwall to some extent to plymouth but really important in cornwall and i think you know what we've seen um some of those usage um percentages that i was quoting you a few minutes ago um you know come from work that we've done with cornwall to invest in the in the railway and i think we're we're seeing more devolution in the railway now and if you say to people in cornwall and you say to their elected officers what's really important to you about the current railway the sleepers always at the top of the list so i think we have to have some respect for what people uh believe is important and the sleeper does allow people to do things that wouldn't be possible um otherwise i mean the the air service into cornwall is pretty limited it's often seasonal there is currently a, a new key to gatwick um uh, air route but you know it doesn't it doesn't have a really early morning departure and and some of the connections at Gatwick are not great because obviously it's um it's not Heathrow so um we see people often going up on a Sunday Sunday evening they're heading maybe for a week's work in London or they're actually heading out on the Eurostar to places like Paris or or Brussels, all people going to Heathrow. Um, and people do value that. A lot of the yeah. tourists value it. I mean, hotel accommodation in Cornwall, as you may have discovered yourself, is is limited um, because they don't want to see the large-scale, you know, development that places like Benidorm have had. You know, you don't see uh, towers of hotels on the uh, on the beaches of Cornwall. So the, the sleeper plays a, a role there. Yeah. It's really important locally. I mean, I'm uh, just about old enough to remember what happened when uh, British Rail did propose getting rid of the uh, the Fort William sleeper? There was a massive uh, fuss, and um, uh, you know, one uh, one railway journalist who's ended up. Uh, Living, uh, it was always lived in Cornwall. I think uh, ran the last campaign when um, the sleeper looked like it was under under threat. But yeah, it, it, it obviously does require quite large amounts of subsidy. But again, large in in some ways, but not as large perhaps as other sums of money that are 
floating around but it's really a, a very valued product by the people of um and i do I, I do get that mark and you you, you, you that's a, a beautifully answered if I, um i mean as a as a so i suppose as a proud northerner it it got me very cross when you know the hs2 decision was made not not necessarily hs2 per se but the fact that was here was westminster and whitehall telling a region of the country what was good for it and i suppose it's exactly the same with the sleeper and i do take the point and it it is a you know if 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 that's what really matters then we have to listen to that I, i accept that completely um there's one other though if i may um I mean, one of the things that always used to surprise me with on-train catering um, back in Virgin West Coast days and also with um, East Coast days, how expensive it is to operate. You still have um, a, a Pullman dining service. I mean, just for those who haven't tried it or aren't aware, it is sensationally good. It right? is. So let's, let's be absolutely clear about yeah. that. But again... Do you look at that and think, no, I can see how that drops through to the P&L. I can see how having that service makes, makes you know, more people buy tickets. The service itself is just without equal. But again, financially, does it, does it stack up? Well, I mean, we, we love the fact that we've got the, the Pullman dining. And I mean, anyone who, who uses it um, always uh, talks positively. And we're actually in the... Uh, in the top uh, 1,000 London restaurants on uh, on TripAdvisor. Really? <laughs> Congratulations. Um, but, um, I mean, I I suppose I would say, look, at the moment we're only running it on, on six trains a day and I run yeah. 1,600 trains a day. So, um, I mean, my, my marketing and comms people will be tearing their hair out when I sit here honestly and tell you it's only on six trains um, a day. But, of course, that, that means the cost of providing it, again, yeah. is is relatively small. And I suppose what it does is it brings a, a bit of a halo over the business. It shows people what they can experience, although they won't experience it on on every trip. You know, we have people travelling with us not because they want to go to Plymouth or Exeter uh, for any particular reason in Plymouth or Exeter, but they actually want to come out with their friends uh, or family and have a meal on the train and they turn around and, and go back again. And I think it does... It is worth reflecting that the whole usage of the Pullman has completely changed, which is why we don't do breakfast on the on the business trains to London. So Pullman used to be all about business people, and I have to say civil servants as well. I mean, 42% of civil servants in 2008 used to travel in first class, and people were able to put you know breakfast lunch and dinner uh, in railway restaurant cars on their expense tab and people can't do that anymore so it's all about leisure business now and it's about people treating themselves and i think um as we see more and more leisure customers i think uh, as a railway we do have to think about how we appeal to the leisure customers and i absolutely take your point richard about the the costs of it but i think there is something for us to think about um you know the the gap between what i'm doing on some of my trains and what some of the the charter train companies you know the fantastic um uh, Midland Pullman that's running with my old first class HST carriages. People are paying phenomenal amounts of money to travel on that and have a meal. And I think we perhaps need to think about how we 
um, mm. do you know plug into some of this um, because there there are some people out there who don't have much money who are looking for value for money and there are some people who actually have got disposable income and I think there's an opportunity for the railway but yeah at the moment restaurant cars very small number um, it, it, it takes up a small amount of my catering uh, budget, but I think it's the right thing to do to showcase what we can do and to bring that sort of halo across the business. I'm so can I just dive in there so, for a second? Yeah, absolutely, Richard. go for it. Um, like, like you, I've used that service and it is sensational. Yeah. Um, I mean, I travelled with Mark and we paid our way and all the rest of it, and the staff clearly love it. And they weren't they weren't pulling out the stops because Mark was on the train. You could see it was absolutely what they wanted. I think they to might do. have been. A bit. <laughs> well, maybe a bit. Um, but Mark's use of the word halo is really good. This is something that Christopher Garnet was very good at at GNER, wasn't he, with, you know, linen tablecloths and dining cars and the route of the Flying Scotsman. Um, you can't value it, I suppose, in, as, as an accountant wishes to, but the, 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 the idea that the Great Western Railway, the route of the Cornish Riviera, has got dining cars and Pullman dining and a sleeping car, and he's that whole railway has got a value, I think. And it's, yeah. it's I think that value is worth having. And all power to Mark um, for putting up the, the, the case for sleeping cars and, and Pullman dining in the face of arguments, doubtless from accountants like, yeah, like okay. you, Richard. I, I, I got who, that <laughs> point, by the way. I got that loud and clear. Who um, want to hit it? Right, yeah, I shall. I, I, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't bring my finance team for their away day out on the Pullman. I hasten to add. <laughs> okay, right. But I shall, you know I shall back off. Now your turn again. No, Richard. no. But you're you're right. I, there was a point that Mark made, which I thought was 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 spot on about that. I mean, we've seen everything that you know Jeremy Hoskins and the the team have done. Um, with things like the Midland Pullman. I took my father um, out on the Midland Pullman earlier this year. We went up the Settle Carlisle, you know, went up to Carlisle and back. And it, uh, from what I could, what I um, experienced, it was basically just an excuse to eat an awful lot. I mean, it was fantastic. Um, but you're right, the difference between that and Pullman, you know, on your six trains, actually quite narrow, really. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, but we're coming towards the end. Um, and there was, there's one thing that you guys have done. And I know, Mark, you were quite um, – this was a big thing for you. Uh, you. You got involved with the acquisition of uh, large parts of the Viva Rail company and the battery um, uh, technology trains, um, which is really innovative um, and something that I know the late uh, Adrian Shooter had been, uh, been very heavily involved with. But I know it's something you're quite passionate about. I mean, how, how has that gone? Are we, we going to see more battery trains uh, appearing across the network? Well, I, I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to see uh, a battery train on the Greenford branch in the early part of next year. Oh, wow. Oh, um, and I, I think, I mean, look, it was really tragic and sad, wasn't it, what, what happened to Adrian? And he rang me in his, in his final few weeks alive and said, look, Mark, you know, the the company's going to collapse into receivership um, and I'm just not well enough to, to do anything about it. Um, is there any way you can you can help? And, um, you know, Pete Wilkinson and I looked at this and said, well, actually, um, we're quite well advanced with this project now because we'd signed up with Adrian and his business to 
uh, have Viva Rail bring a battery train onto the Greenford branch as trial. And, and what we're trialling isn't the train. I mean, we know that battery trains can work. What we're trialling is the fast charging technology that says when the Greenford branch is sat in the bay platform for four minutes every half an hour, there's enough time and enough power in the batteries uh, that are on the ground and the charging rail uh, to transfer that power to the train. Uh, and every time it comes, it, it connects automatically, charges and goes back. Um, and that's what we're really testing. Um, so I spoke to the receiver um, of Viva Rail and we did a deal. And uh, one of my team rang me as the deal completed and they said, Mark, uh, you know, you're now the proud owner of uh, 70 uh, bean cans <laughs> uh, in a uh, scrapyard in uh, Worcestershire because we the deal gave us the, the, the battery train, the two-car unit, all the technology, the intellectual property, and the rest of the Viva Rail uh, fleet of, um, oh, of wow. D-stock. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I live here uh, at home in, um, in Oxfordshire. I mean, I have suggested to Tanya that we, uh, we bring one uh, and put it in the back garden, but that's not gone down. How did that well. go? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, and we've also bought uh, the West Midlands fleet that they took out of service, right. and they're currently stored at Reading. So anyone who travels past our, our depot at Reading will see those. Um, and, of course, those vehicles have quite a lot of money spent on them to bring their interiors up to a good condition. So we, we'll hopefully get the Greenford trial up and running. Um, you know, the, the charging rail is in place, the electrical equipment's in place, network rail have been, you know, amazing with this, uh, which is not something I always say, but they're really keen. We've got some really enthusiastic people in network rail. Um, I don't know, who knows, let's see how you're... Uh, green signals stuff goes. You could maybe come and do an outside broadcast from the uh, ah. from the battery train, and then um, if we can prove that it works and it works satisfactorily, I think the other Thames Valley branch lines like Windsor, Bourne End, Marlow, and Henley, and possibly some of the stuff in in Cornwall would be candidates for that type of technology as well. Just for the benefit of the people who maybe haven't heard of it, uh, you mentioned in passing there. Mark, that, that you put down a, a short section of, of third rail that the train runs onto into the terminus and it automatically starts the charging process while it's sitting there, yeah? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's effectively, it's like three little bits of third rail all lined up together. And, um, yeah, the train, the train is programmed to uh, connect to that as it runs into the platform and it's charging from the point pretty much it stops to the point just before the driver applies power to leave again. Um, so um, you're really maximising that, that turnaround. And, of course, I mean, it's, it's not difficult at all to see how a battery train might work something like a Paddington Bedwin service where it would be on overhead power charging to Newbury and then the batteries would take it to Bedwin and back. But it's okay. much more difficult to see how um, a battery train could operate on a route with no electrification at all. And this is what we're testing really on the Greenford okay. branch. Well, that's great, Mark. Look, um, 
I think that's that's just about worked our way through the things of uh, of interest we particularly wanted to talk about. Though I'm sure Richard will agree, we could talk for the rest of the day and listen to you um, telling us about Great West. And I really take my hat off to you for the innovation, for the sticking with the um, Pullman dining and the sleeper car, and the fact that you know if you've been MD since 2008. Uh, in all that time, you're still pushing and pushing and pushing to create a better railway and, and more power to your elbow. So um, for now, Mark, thanks ever so much for coming along, and we hope to have you back as a guest sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, thanks Mark. for having me. No, thank Absolutely. you very much. It's been great to be here. Thanks. Cheers. Good for us too. Well, what about that, Richard? Another expert quietly talking common sense about an industry we love, and you just got to say, why can't they listen and just do the sort of things that Mark's wanting to do because everybody would benefit, including the Treasury and the DFT, but somehow they can't see it. They don't want to give up control, do they? No, I, it, it is um, it is depressing, but we are lucky to have people like him, let's be honest. I mean, I first met Mark in the cab of a Class 47, would you believe, when he was yeah. at First Northwestern and I was at the Strategic Rail Authority. I've known him ever since, um, worked with him at National Express when he was um, uh, involved there and obviously watched his career develop he is he is he's he's i think he's brilliant really and he's he's solid he's sensible he's visionary he gets on his own you know he's, if i say he's a grafter i don't mean that in a disrespectful way no he, you know he, he really does but he's great networker he's a great ambassador for the railway and yeah we should listen to people like him a lot more well all we can do is to continue to amplify what he thinks and all that sort of thing, in, in the hope that we can start making some progress at some point towards yep. the things that particularly the separation of um, of costs and revenue, that is the big one, isn't it? It is, because it, it, it means that the kind of stuff that he was talking about, um, you know, those sort of smaller local initiatives, and again, without being disrespectful, because what they've achieved is fantastic, they become a lot harder where the two sides don't, um, don't get aligned. However, having said that, I did come away. I don't know if you felt the same with quite a bounce in about sort of you know a bouncy step because the stuff that, despite all that, he's doing, he's got done and he's getting done and it's great. But the cost of it is uh, is a to- is, is, is too too heavy. Um, a a, a TOC MD who I won't name who left the industry in disgust told me not long before he left that he had a wonderful initiative that he reckons would have raised three million quid in revenues and it would have cost a million pounds to do. And the instant the DFT heard that, they said, no, nope, we're not doing it. Um, it's very sad. And he, he left. We've lost him to the industry. He said, what's the point where you can't bring forward mm. a scheme which would generate two million pounds? Mm. Let that not hang great. In Let that hang in the air for a minute. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, look, thanks for listening to uh, to this episode of, of Green Signals. And thanks once again to Mark Hopwood, CBE, for joining us yeah. to share his experience and insights. Born of 34 years of railway experience, and there really is no substitute for experience. Um, do let us know what you thought of today's show on Green Signals uh, on Twitter, um, or X as we're now supposed to call it. Uh, or LinkedIn, I suppose, together with any suggestions of things you think we should cover and talk about. We're open to all suggestions. We want everybody to be a green signaller. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe on podcast platforms and on YouTube. But for now, that's it. Do join us again next week for Green Signals Episode 6. 
Don't know what it's going to be yet because it's always topical and we choose it during the week. If you think you've got an idea we should follow that we might have missed, let us know. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>